So we're in Acts, if you don't know. Um, Acts is about the church. Church is not a building, right? Newsflash, we're sitting in a school right now. Church is you guys, right? That's the church. So it's the story of God's people. It's the ecclesia, the called out. We're called out from something to another thing. So that story is written in Acts, how it begins, problems, bumps, how they go through those bumps. And now in Acts, we're in this great section. And in this section, it's eight, nine, and 10, we get three close-ups on conversion. To this point, it's been 3,000 got saved, 5,000, you know, just be these massive numbers, but there hasn't been like, what are the mechanics of salvation, right? So we're gonna go through one of them today. Um, Wednesday night, we'll be hitting on, you know, the rest, the stuff we don't cover on Sunday, we cover on Wednesday. You guys are invited to that right here, seven o'clock. Um, but these three conversions, they're as different as you could possibly imagine. The Ethiopian eunuch, Saul of Tarsus, and Cornelius. They're way different. And I think the reason is because whenever you talk to somebody about the way they came to faith, they're never the same, right? That's why I love testimonies. We gotta hear a little bit of a testimony with Dave Bushnell. They hit the way that Jesus has walked with him through very hard things. And that's different from my story and your story. They're all unique. And these three stories are vastly different. And what I think sometimes the mistake we make is we try to systematize salvation. And these three stories to me just say, throw your systems out the door because God is in heaven and does whatever he wants. And he's gonna save people the way he wants to save people. So they're brilliant like that. So we're gonna just look at one, the Ethiopian eunuch, because while they're all different, no doubt, they're also all the same. It's people finding water in the desert. And you and I can most likely resonate with his story as well, okay? So I'm gonna read it, then we'll talk about it. Acts chapter eight, beginning in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he arose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, 
About whom, I ask you, does this prophet speak? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. Brilliant story. I have three points. We're gonna look at the man, look at the message that was given to him and the miracle that happens to him. First, the man. Here's what we learn in verse 27. He is a court official of Candace the queen in charge of all her treasure. He's a money dude. He's a Jeff Bezos. He's a Bill Gates. He's an Alan Greenspan, right? He's way up there. In this kingdom, the Ethiopian kingdom, there'd be the queen, there'd be the king, excuse me, There'd be the queen and there'd be him. And he's in charge of Candace because here's what took place during this time in Ethiopia, this kingdom. The king who thought he was a God couldn't be troubled with the finer points of the kingdom. He couldn't do that stuff. So all the running of the kingdom, he said, the queen does that. So she did all the day-to-day stuff, all the work of the Kingdom, while the king acted like a god. Sounds like some marriage counseling that I've done, right? (laughs) No, I can't do that. My wife's going to do that. I'm like, be careful, bro, because you're going to look for a new queen pretty soon. That's what's going to happen to you. Candace is going to take off, all right? So that's the way it went. So he works for Candace, who's really in charge of everything. He's number three. I mean, he is way up in this kingdom. His position is high. He's got money. So it says that he was seated in his chariot. He owns the title. He's not leasing it. He's not making low monthly payments on it. It's his, his very own four horsepower Ferrari, his chariot. And then in the chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. He's that guy swerving all over the desert, can't keep in his lane. You're behind him honking. Dude, what's up, right? You pass him, he's sitting there reading. You're like, bro, it's a chariot, not a library. Dry for crying out loud. It's a chariot, not a phone booth. Dry for crying out loud. It's a chariot, not a restaurant. Dry for crying out loud. It's a chariot, not a beauty parlor, drive for crying out loud. I go on and on, I won't. It's my own pet peeve. (laughs) Just drive. Right, he's that guy. He's reading the scroll of Isaiah. The scroll of Isaiah is 35 feet long. There's one I saw it last time I was in Israel. It would cost a year's wage for a man to purchase, about $50,000 just the scroll of Isaiah, which means 
Most people back in this day didn't own a Bible. If you want to read the Bible, you went to a synagogue or you went to the temple to read the Bible. No one's running around with their own copies. This guy's got so much cash though, he decides to buy, he decides to buy an entire scroll of Isaiah, throws down $50,000 in cash. He's educated, super educated. Here's how we know that. The scroll of Isaiah only came in two languages. The Hebrew original or the Greek Septuagint. That's it. So he's from an area that does not speak Hebrew or Greek. He's learned his language, can read in his language. He's also learned Hebrew or Greek, possibly both, and can read fluently in those languages. He's a PhD, super smart dude. He's got power, he's got wealth, and he's got education. Dude's a happening guy, but he's got a problem. He's got all that stuff, but there's a problem he's searching for right now, right? He leaves his kingdom where he's the dude and he travels months and months to go up to this other nation called Israel to go to their temple in Jerusalem. Now, why would he do that? Because even though he had all this power and all this money and all this education, there was something in him that was dissatisfied. That every time he achieved something, what he found was it's like a mirage and what he thought would make him satisfied. When he gets there, all that's happened is that thing just moved down the road a little while and he's got to go further. Have you found that in life? Where you keep thinking, it's this next thing that'll make me happy. If I could just graduate from high school, I'd be happy. You graduate from high school and then you got to get a job and you're not happy. So you're like, if I could just go to college, that'd make me happy. And you go to college and then you still gotta get a job. If I could just get the right career, that would make me happy. And you get the best job in the world and they say for about two years, you'll be happy at that job. And then you'll be, I want a different job. And you're like, well, job didn't do it. If I could just get a woman, that'd make me happy. And after a while, it's if I could just get a different woman, that'd make me happy. <laughs> If I could just get a wife and some kids, that'd make me happy. And you get a wife and some kids, you're like, if my kids would just grow up and leave my house and stop breaking my stuff, I'd be happy. <laughs> right? It just goes on. That's the way life is. It's a mirage. And you're chasing something that can never satisfy you. It's called discontentment of soul. And everyone, everyone has it. But his problem is bigger than that. Not just this seeking for something. The Bible tells us he's a eunuch. I'm saying, what's a eunuch? It's a great question for your mother. Ask your mom, she'll tell you. <laughs> Here's what happens when there are kings and queens. Kings were very, very careful about who was hanging out with their queen. And so what they would do is they would fix, usually boys, because then it made them grow up into very kind of um, docile people. So they'd fix boys in preparation for that service. So he was neutered, right? Probably against his will, probably when he was young to prepare him to be their docile servant. So that's, that's a major problem. He was hurt as a kid. Didn't have a choice in it, forced into it. And that harm would wound him for his life. Cut off, never able to have kids, never, never able to have a normal relationship with a woman, 
always being seen as the eunuch, right? The guy that doesn't quite fit. Oh, you're a eunuch. You wouldn't understand. Oh, you're a eunuch. You don't get this. So he's always felt that. Even though he has all that stigma in his life, he's worked his tail off. Got to the top of the kingdom, educated, money, power, right? But even in the midst of all that, there's something in him that's lacking. That's why he decides to make this pilgrimage. Now, why would a guy from wherever this is at, Northern Africa, why would a guy in Northern Africa decide, I need to go to Jerusalem to the temple? Well, there's a story behind that. It's believed that when the queen of Sheba came and visited Solomon, remember Solomon? Guy who had 700 wives, 300 concubines, a thousand women. Have you ever thought about that? It's crazy. If he was to spend one day with each of his wives, it would take him more than three years to make it through just his wives. Imagine just trying to remember all their names. Like in my mind, I can just imagine like Solomon in his massive temple, like just, or his ma- massive palace, just kind of walking along and seeing some guy like, wow, pretty, what's your name? Slap, I'm your wife. Oh, note to self, hey, remind me of that. I go, uh, right? Just because you would forget. It's insane. Well, according to tradition, a thousand wasn't enough. And when the queen of Sheba from this area visits him, he took a shine to her and ends up having a son with the King Solomon. His name is Menelik. And King Menelik took back with him Judaism to this area. So the Sabbath day, kosher laws, dress, um, circumcision, the big things that mark Jews, he took back with him to this area. And there's a group called, you can Google them, the Falashas. And they actually exist to this day. And when Israel became a nation, many of them were accepted into Israel as Jewish people because they track back their history, their lineage to King Solomon. So it could be that this group of people that his mom or his grandma or somebody had heard about, there's a God in Israel called Yahweh. And maybe you need to go see the God of Israel, Yahweh. And a grandma or a friend or a neighbor had told him. So he said, that's it. I'm doing it. Gets a caravan together, makes the, it would be months of a journey to get up there. He makes this massive journey up there. And the temple at this time is brilliant. It's called Herod's temple. Massive white marble would glisten. You would see it from miles away on the pinnacle of that city that sits up on this massive mountain. Brilliant. And he sees it and he's getting excited and he can't believe it. Finally, maybe this is it. Maybe the mirage will stay still long enough for me to find what I've been looking for. And so he gets there, his entourage gets off. He starts heading up to the temple to go into the temple and they're posted on the gates to the temple is a sign. And the sign tells the kind of people that aren't allowed in the temple. It'd be a sign kind of like you go to a restaurant and it says no shirt, no shoes, no service. Like that kind of sign. And there in bold letters on the top of that sign from Deuteronomy 23 would be this, no eunuchs allowed. And that man would see that sign. And all the pain and all the hurt 
and all the damage that he thought he had overcome came rushing back to him and he feels like a little boy who had been hurt really deeply again. And he turns around, rejected. Ever been rejected? Is there a worse emotion in the human dilemma than rejection? I don't know of one. You're dating the girl of your dreams. You think she's the one and then she says, well, actually I think of you more like a brother. And you're like, oh brother. It's not you, it's me. No, it's definitely you, (laughs) let's be honest. Can we just be friends? Nope, no, we can't, there's no way. Right, that rejection goes deep. It actually hurts your, your stomach. There's physical ramifications to it. You get fired from your job. You're not cutting it, man. Rejected. You get served divorce papers and you didn't know it was coming. That kind of rejection shapes people, hurts people. So this man, through no fault of his own, hidden anything, it had been done to him. Now he comes to the place where he thinks he's gonna find the answers that he has not been able to find yet. And when he gets there, that very place rejects him and sends him home. It's hardcore. Here's the good news. Look down at verse 29. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. If you don't know the story of Acts chapter eight, Philip has been leading a mega church in Samaria. Thousands of people are getting saved. It's a massive revival. There's joy in the city. We'll hit it on Wednesday night. It is a brilliant story. Right in the midst of all that mega church thing, God says, hey, Philip, leave that and go for a walk. Doesn't tell him why, doesn't tell him where, just go south. So Philip starts walking for at least three days. You know why? Because God said there's one guy out in the desert who's been really hurt and rejected and humiliated and I love him and I want him to know that. Oh, that God's people would be listening to God's spirit because there's a lot of people in Grant's past that are broken and hurt and need to hear about God's love and mercy and grace for them. Oh, that we'd respond like Philip. Oh, that we wouldn't say, but I gotta make a church to deal with. I got a revival over here. Oh, that we were like Philip, so awesome. And so here's what happens. He runs over verse 30 and heard him reading the prophet and asked him, do you understand what you're reading? A great exercise when you're reading the Bible is to place yourself into the character, into their shoes, into their sandals, into whatever, and imagine what's happening, okay? So here's this guy, power, privilege, education, reading in a foreign language, and he is reading the scroll of Isaiah, and then all of a sudden, some freak comes running next to him in his chariot and is like, hey, bro, do you know what you're reading? How do you respond to that? You're on 6th Street, heading home for work. Windows rolled down. Some dude just comes jogging up beside you. Hey, man, what's going on? How you doing? You know what life is about? What do you do? 
Roll your window up, lock the doors, and just turn slightly to the left. Thump, thump. <laughs> Solve that problem. Grants Pass is a little bit better right now. I mean, that's really this. It's incredible. He does not respond by saying, I don't understand it right now, but I have a PhD in Greek and I will figure it out. And I did not get to the top of Ethiopia by listening to people who run alongside chariots. So run along, buddy. What does he say? How can I unless someone guides me? He's a humble man. He's got power, he's got privilege, he's educated. What does he say? I need help. I could use some help. Can you help me? And that's what Philip does. He begins to share this message with him, right? And, and the, the message that he's reading in Isaiah, he's, he's to chapter 53. So most likely he started at the beginning of Isaiah and he's just charging through Isaiah and he comes to chapter 53, which is John 3, 16 of the Old Testament, right? It's a softball to Philip. It'd be like somebody asking you, I was just reading this verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Could you help me understand that? Yes, I can. I can definitely help you on that one. That's what's served up for Philip. It's brilliant. God's timing is perfect here. He's in this text that speaks, speaks of Jesus. But there's something I think that happens. I think the eunuch actually stopped here because in Jesus, the eunuch saw himself. Notice what's quoted here. Like a lamb before its shearers is silent. Like a little lamb having something taken away from him. He was silent. That was me when I was a little boy. That happened to me. And there was silence. Where are the people that should have defended me and protected me? Where's my mom? Where's my dad? It's taken. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. I was just humiliated at the temple. That's not just. But here's the big one. Who can describe his generation? That word generation in the Greek is family. It's a nice way of saying whoever this guy is never had a family. And the eunuch would say, me too. Me too. I should have been able to have a family. I should have been able to have a wife. I should have been able to have kids. But that was stolen from me. And that's why he says, verse 30. For whom I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Because it feels like it could be me. And then Philip opened his mouth, beginning with this scripture, told him the good news about Jesus. What did he share? We really like to share the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, very important. But we skip too often the life of Jesus. I think he shared the life of Jesus. See, there's really good news in the life of Jesus. On Easter, we celebrate his resurrection, which is huge and important. But guess what? Jesus spent 33 years on earth. And when he spent 33 years on earth, something happened to Jesus. Do you know that? I'll read you the verses that talk about it. Here's what the Bible says happened to Jesus. God, the son. It's the book of Hebrews. 
I'll read them and try not to make comments on them. So Hebrews 2, verse 8 says this. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. God the Son was somehow perfected through suffering. Chapter two, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus was tempted. Now he can help you and me when we're tempted. Chapter four, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The life of Jesus, the Bible tells us, created in Jesus an ability, an ability that's really important. So parents, if you have a son who's rambunctious, is there any other kind? <laughs> and he hurts himself and hits his head really hard. He has two choices of who to run to for comfort, mom or dad. Who does he run to? Why? Because a dad, because I, I should say, will say to my son, rub it out, boy. But dad, I can see my skull. Rub harder, son. If it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. Come on. Right? What does a mom do? Oh, I know. Oh, come here. Oh, I understand. She has compassion and empathy. That's what the Bible says. Because of the life of Jesus, he now has compassion and empathy on us. See, the good news about Jesus is not the bracelet, what would Jesus do? The good news about Jesus is, what has Jesus done? That's the gospel. He's lived life just like you and me. He's been tempted just like you and me. He's been humiliated just like you and me. He's been rejected just like you and me. He's been forsaken just like you and me. He's been betrayed just like you and me. And because of that, when that happens to us, he's able to say, I know, I know. Let me walk with you. Let me help you. I know, that's what he's able to do. So here's the miracle. It's verse 39, excuse me, th verse 36. And as they were going along, they came to some water. He hears the good news of Jesus. Hey, what prevents me from being baptized? He gets baptized. Philip disappears and is rejoicing. He tried religion and had rejected him. Your kind isn't allowed in here. He tried education 
It never fulfilled him. He still had questions. He tried money. It was never enough. He tried achievement. He got as high as he could and it wasn't going to do it. And then Jesus, then Jesus and there's rejoicing. Now, most of us, our conversion story is not like the Ethiopian eunuch. I doubt there's anyone in here that after you got baptized, the baptizer just disappears. Boom, gone. I don't know where he went. That was weird. Right? Very unique. But I think we're all the Ethiopian eunuch. I think we're all the Ethiopian eunuch. That just like him, many of us have been wounded. And it's amazing to me, I talk to old and young alike. It's amazing to me how many people were hurt really deeply when they were little. I think it's actually satanic. That our enemy knows this. If I can hit you just right when you're little, when you're eight or nine or 10, and if I can hurt you down there deep in your heart, it'll never heal. And you will carry this wound with you. And you'll start to act out on that in cycles of self-destruction. And my work is done with you. You'll just take care of it from there. It's amazing to me how many people have been wounded by a dad who could care less about you. That's my story by a mom who would never let you get close to her, maybe because she was wounded, by a divorce that came just at the wrong time in your life, by physical abuse, evil people hurting children. And that wound just stays there and festers like, like the Ethiopian eunuch. And it doesn't matter what you do or where you go, it's like you can never be healed from that. It haunts you. I think we're just like him. Or maybe you're successful and you got to the top like this guy. And when you got there, you didn't like the view. And you wondered, is there something more? Maybe you feel like your future's been stolen from you like his was. Maybe it was silence. No one helped me. No one spoke out for me. No one defended me when this happened to me. I got blamed for it. It wasn't my fault. Maybe, maybe you feel like you've been left out. Like there's a sign that says you're not allowed in. Your kind aren't welcome here. You've always felt like you're on the outside and everyone else is on the inside and you're wondering what they're doing in there. But you can't go in. Just like the Ethiopian eunuch. Here's the good news. Jesus says this to us. I've been through it. I've been through all that so that I can have compassion and I can call you, it's Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. I can call you to myself. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. You've been laboring, you're trying to get by it. You're heavy laden by these problems. You can't get through it. And Jesus says, come to me. I'll give you rest. Shalom. And then he says, take my yoke, learn of me, and you'll find rest for your souls. There's two rests in that passage. There's a given rest and discovered rest. Jesus calls and says, come to me, because I've been through it, and I know exactly what it feels like, and I can comfort you and help you and empower you and even heal you. So let me apply this really quick, two applications. Number one, notice what the Ethiopian eunuch says in verse 36. He says, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? That's a loaded question coming from this guy, isn't it? 
Why would he ask it that way? What keeps me from being baptized? Why would he say that? Because he had just been at a temple that he thought he could go into and thought he could get help and thought he could meet with God. And when he got to that temple, he was prevented from going in. So now he's asking the same question. You've told me this good news about Jesus. You've told me about what he's done and how he's lived. What prevents me from being part of his family? Is there gonna be a sign that says, yeah, not you? You know what's so interesting to me? Satan loves to pick up that sign that Jesus tore down and he loves to post it right back up again. Do you know that? I talk to so many people and it doesn't matter, age, sex, creed, color. Satan does this to all of us and it's this. You're not a good Christian. You're not gonna have your prayers answered. You can't go in there. Not after what you've done. You had an abortion when you were 16, not your kind. You're divorced, not your kind. You committed adultery, not your kind. You looked at porn, not your kind. He does the same thing today. He reposts the rules that exclude us from his presence. It's his favorite tactic and he uses it all the time. And what happens when we believe that, when we believe we're excluded from Christ's presence, then all we do is we do our own self-destruction down cycles of worse and worse and worse and worse behavior. Instead of getting the help that we need, we think we're excluded because of the lies of the enemy. Jesus on the cross said this, it is finished. Not it's begun, not I'm a, I'm a good way into it, not we got chapter one done, it is finished. Colossians 2 says, all the handwriting that was against you, that excluded you, that kept you out, Jesus Christ has pulled it down and covered it in his blood. And now it says, you can come in, come unto me, all who are heavy laden, all who are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. That's the truth. Do you know that truth? Because the enemy will lie to you. You didn't read your Bible enough this week. You didn't pray enough. You didn't share with that guy. You sinned and you're excluded. And it's a lie and it's satanic and it takes no faith to believe a demon. It takes faith to believe what the Bible says. It's finished, come in. That's number one. Number two is this. Most of us need to fill up. Most of us in this journey of faith need to fill up to come up into our chariot and to speak to us and help us and pray with us and answer questions for us. Most of us need that. I am so glad for the Phillips in my life. So glad. And this little text right here, right before you get here, it has this interesting little statement. It says in Isaiah 53, that by his stripes, we are healed. The Ethiopian eunuch who'd been wounded so terribly and humiliated and betrayed and rejected, he has joy because he was healed. He was healed. There's something powerful. I think it's called the priesthood of believers. That we have this priest kind of position that we can actually look at a person and tell them, you are forgiven. I've been able to say that to people and I've seen them cry because no one's ever said that to them. And you can read it and you can think it and you can say it to yourself, but there is a power when another believer looks at you and says, no, listen, 
those sins or how you've been sinned against, you're forgiven. There's a power in it. It's a Philip kind of power. But here's the thing about getting a Philip. You have to be humble. You have to be humble. This Ethiopian who was powerful and rich and educated says to this running nomad in the desert, yeah, come up in my chariot, help me. He wasn't in pride saying, I'll figure it out, I got it. Give me time. In humility, he said, no, help me. You can't get help unless you're humble. You can't get help unless you're humble. If you're sick and you're not getting better, if you never go to the doctor, what's gonna happen to you? You're gonna die. Humility says, I'm sick and I need help. That's what humility says. So I'm gonna make one offer to you today. We didn't do a prayer time, but we're gonna do one right after service. And if you feel like the Ethiopian eunuch, hurt, excluded, rejected, humiliated, and those cycles keep poisoning your life, then over here, some Titus two gals, some pastors, some staff, some leaders will be over here. And we wanna pray for you. We wanna pray that by his stripes, you're healed. That you enter into the rest that Jesus has promised to you, that you'll find it. The rest even unto your soul, as Jesus puts it. But you gotta be humble. Because if you leave here without it, you might miss out. You might miss out. And I don't want you to miss out. Be prayed for. Be set free. Enjoy the peace and the rest Jesus can bring to you. Enjoy the healing he brings to you. And if you're saying, I'm good, then when we take communion, I want you to remember this. I was thinking about this today. That someone said the gospels are Jesus eating food with all the wrong people. You can summarize them that way. You and I are all the wrong people. And we're the ones that get to dine with the king. That we're beggars that get to come to the king's table and receive bread and wine. They get to receive the body and the blood, forgiveness and power that he wants us there. He invited us there. He tore down every rule, every sign that excludes us and says, come to my table and dine. Remember that. You're invited to the table of the king. And when you're at the table of the king, he changes beggars into kings and queens. That's what happens to us. And so Jesus, this day, My heart breaks because I know there are so many Ethiopian eunuchs in seats today. We have an enemy who is so exacting in his cuts that they have the potential to destroy who we actually are and make us into something gross and wrong. 
And I'm so grateful that you're the one that can take what is bent and make it straight. Take what is broken and bind it up. That you're the great physician who heals us. So I pray, Lord, for great healing to be shed upon the body of Christ today. The 11 a.m. service at Edgewater. Would you heal hearts? Would you lead us to your rest? May we leave here like the Ethiopian eunuch, rejoicing because we've met our compassionate high priest who's able to help us because he's gone through the same thing as us. And then may we become, because we've been comforted and healed, may we become healing comforters as well. May we eat and may we drink at the king's table being reminded that you want us there. And may the lies of the enemy that exclude us from your presence and your power, may today they fade and disappear. And may we know what we are because of the gospel, because it is finished. And I ask this in your name, amen.